Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. It's Friday, the 23rd of October. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, Emily is fresh from the thrilling experience of covering the final of the Trump-Biden TV debates. Emily, why don't you start by giving us just a quick overview of where things are with the US election campaign? Because I get the sense that for a lot of people, particularly outside the US, they're just starting to tune in to the fact that the US goes to the polls on November the 3rd. So give us a sort of general overview of what, what they need to know. Well, welcome, first of all, to the U.S. election. We're 10 days out. The top lines are Biden is ahead in national polls, and he is also ahead in most state polls, notably swing state polls, although state polls are you know, notably less reliable. And there were obviously polls that did not detect Trump's support among rural voters in 2016. So people are a little bit wary of them. The pandemic, I would say, has dominated the discussion in this election, and it is largely due to the pandemic and, also, and Trump's mishandling thereof, that Biden appears to be as far ahead as he is. The other part of the pandemic, right, is that it affects the logistics of the election. So early voting turnout is way up this year. Mail-in voting is way up this year. I was actually just reading this morning that young voters are making up a larger share of voting turnout than in 2016, which I think was pretty unexpected because Biden was not like the youth candidate. So the fact that young people are going to the polls is a surprise, an October surprise. I mean, in the last 10 days, I think, and I I wrote this in my little recap on the debate last night, so sorry to to quote myself, but I think at this point, both of the candidates have made so clear who they are, right? Trump has really doubled down on just appealing to his base of white people in certain sections of America. And Joe Biden has tried to pitch himself as, you know, the the person who's going to restore the soul of the nation and, and get the pandemic under control, but also kind of reverse some of the harm that he and others believe Trump has done over the past four years. You know, they've they've made their cases. Voting has already started. The other thing that I would note is that because of these pandemic logistics, you, oh, oh non-American listener, may not wake up November 4th to know who the next president of the United States is going to be. And I think, you know, just to reiterate that, we in the media need to be very responsible in, in saying that that actually doesn't mean that the election is, is flawed, as Trump has, has tried to suggest it would, but rather that more people are voting ahead of time or by mail than in years prior because of the pandemic. Because in fact, I saw today that the number of people 
believed to have voted by mail already, as we record this, is around 50 million, which is really astonishing. Early voting is way up. There, there have already been more early voters in Texas than voted for Trump in Texas in 2016. We can speak more throughout the, the course of this podcast about why that might be and about you know voter enthusiasm or lack thereof and, and the what's at stake for American voters. But I think that the, the lengths that people have gone to to vote in this election already or speaks well, you know, of the American, the American voter. Absolutely. And just briefly, because we'll we'll come on to this later and also in upcoming episodes of this podcast. But I think some people tuning into this, as it were, looking at, for example, the New Statesman's own results forecast, which currently gives Biden, I think, a roughly 88% chance of winning, will be thinking back to 2016, you know, talk about waking up the morning after the election. Mm-hmm. And that, ah, you know, we saw all of those newspaper reports saying that Hillary Clinton had a 90 or a 95 or a 99% chance of winning and then Trump won. What do you say to people who say we really shouldn't be trusting the polls or forecasts like that this time around? First of all, I think both of the campaigns are acting as though the polls are wrong. The Biden campaign has said, like, we have to campaign as though this is a dead heat. The Trump campaign has literally said we don't trust the polls. I think, you know, again, there are some states that have less reliable polling than others. Although I think that the big hit in Trump vote of 2016, again, was this rural voter you know, enthusiasm. And that has should have been corrected for among the polls. But I wrote this, I, this is like, we're five minutes in and I've quoted myself twice, which is unfortunate. But my column this week, I wrote that question marks for me in this election come from what is different in 2020, right? Like Trump is the president and is sowing doubt in the legitimacy of the election. That is new. That's not the same as Trump, the candidate saying, oh, I'm not really sure, you know, what will happen if I lose. That's, this is somebody who has sits ahead of the executive branch saying, well, maybe the the election is not legitimate. Also, this forgotten, you know, the, the quote unquote forgotten man and woman who was the Trump voter of 2016, that voter has now been extensively profiled, right? And has been catered to with policy for the past four years. At least that's the, actually, they haven't been catered to with policy, right? Like the, I, I would argue that a much smaller, wealthier segment of them has been catered to with policy. But, you know, they, they've kind of been centered in the American discourse, so I don't really think that we're going into this looking at it the same way as we were four years ago. Does that make sense? It does indeed. So we might we might not have the same blind spots. I mean, of course, it begs the question, what might be the blind spot of this time around? But right, exactly. you know, we, can, we can talk about that more in, in due course. But thanks for that. That's been a very useful setup for our, our conversation. And I think just catching up with where we are. Let's briefly go through our moments of the week. And then I'm going to introduce our guests. So Emily, what was your moment of the week? Well, because I watched it, I will say the second and last presidential debate. It was very different from the first debate in some ways, namely Trump did not constantly interrupt. He was noticeably calmer, or I guess more restrained. However, this really frustrates me. Every time Trump can kind of like keep it together in a public appearance, there are people who come out and say like, it's 10 days to go to the election. And there were pundits on the little after show thing on NBC or whatever I was watching last night who were like, it's like there's two Donald Trumps. No, there's one Donald Trump who can comport himself slightly differently if, say, a microphone is muted, which it sometimes was in this debate. Having said that, I think that, you know, I think both candidates made their kind of expected pitch. Trump spoke about conspiracy theories regarding Joe Biden. Joe Biden said, oh, I want to talk about your American, you know, the average family. And, and Trump mishandled the pandemic. Moderator Kirsten Welker did a 
great job controlling the, the conversation. As I said, I think the cases have been made by both candidates, and we're just going to hear that for the next week and a little bit. And what was your moment of the week? I'm going to, to quickly group three together. Regular listeners will know that I'm I'm interested in the way that a China skeptic alliance is coming together or consolidating itself in the Indo-Pacific region. And there were three interesting developments on that front this week. On October the 19th, Yoshihide Suga, the new Japanese prime minister, did his first foreign visit in the role and notably went to Vietnam. And in Hanoi, gave a speech in which he talked about Vietnam being a crucial partner to achieving Japan's vision of the a free and open Indo-Pacific, as he put it, which is a sort of Japanese political term referring to counterbalancing China in the region. On the same day, the Indian government announced that Australia would be taking part in its annual Malabar naval exercise, which it does with the US and Japan, another sign of the, the, those four countries known as the Quad coming together and, and cooperating more on military matters. And then to come back to the US election on October the 22nd, Joe Biden wrote an op-ed in America's largest Chinese language newspaper in which he said he wanted to deepen ties with Taiwan and describe the US as a Pacific power. And I think together those all speak to the way that the US and its allies, and indeed countries which has a more complicated relationship like Vietnam, are finding common cause in counterbalancing a rising China in the region. And that if anything, Joe Biden as president would sort of would, would continue that development. And to briefly flag Michael on this week, it speaks to, a, I think, a, a point that perhaps isn't always appreciated overseas, which is that while a lot will change about the US's role in the world, if Joe Biden wins, there will be notes of continuity. And I think the, the, the rising American interest in this kind of Indo-Pacific alliance will be one of them. So that's something to keep watching. So with that, I'm really, really happy to say that we're joined by two fellow members of the New Statesman Media Group family as our guests this week. Courtney Finger is the editor-in-chief of our new FDI publication, Investment Monitor, investmentmonitor.ai, if you want to check it out online. They have a brilliant new website, and they're looking at all aspects of, of investment, but also how that investment touches on other fields, including those that we discuss in this podcast. So I'm very pleased to have her with us today. Hello, Courtney. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by the editor-in-chief of another New States Media Group uh, publication, citymonitor.ai, which focuses on urbanism, urban issues, but again, a lot of issues that touch on other subjects that we often discuss on this podcast. So again, I'd really recommend you take a look at, at, at that website. It, it is a, a redevelopment of the New Statesman's previous City Metric website, which some listeners may have come across. But very exciting things happening there too. So very pleased to have Summer Mattis, editor of City Monitor with us. Hi, Summer. Hi, Jeremy. Super glad to be here. So, Emily, why don't you kick us off with, with this? Because I think there's a, there's a lot to explore here. And I think it's a great opportunity to kind of go beyond the national level of politics or federal politics in the US to talk about both the local and the global dimension to this, this election campaign. Well, right. And, and you know, on this podcast, when we speak about American politics, we really do speak about, sometimes we'll speak about states or like something's happening in Portland or Kenosha, but we don't really drill down into urban issues. So Summer, to start with you, you know, I was going to ask you, what are the ways in which this election matters to cities? But, you know, that <laughs> is kind of an absurd question because it matters in, in so many different ways. But <laughs> I, I guess I guess instead I'll, I'll say, like, what are some of the the themes that come up in covering America's cities or, yeah. on the, you know, that, that are missed 
in broader election coverage, including yeah. statesmen's. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few dynamics to think about when you think about what's going on in America's cities in the context of this broader election campaign. So one is it's been a very hard year. In U.S. cities, it's been particularly a big strain. So you have to go back to the spring and early summer to start to really understand how exhausted urban dwellers are <laughs> in the U.S. You know, we had weeks and months of you know, anti-racism protests in cities all over the country. And then that, you know, quickly became a very hot campaign issue because you've got the president who's seeking re-election, you know, fanning the flames of white supremacy threatening to withhold federal funding from cities that don't get their protests under control. And in fact, you know, even as you saw in the debate last night, Emily, it, describing the current state of U.S. cities in a completely inaccurate way. Last night, Trump mentioned that his view was that like New York City has, has been, you know, abandoned and it's like a horrible wasteland, you know, since the protests. And, it, and you know, I can tell you I'm, I'm in New York City right now. That's simply not true. You walk around New York City right now, and there's plenty of people, and people are trying to go about their business the best way they can, but it is not a ghost town. It is not in flames. And, and you've seen that same kind of rhetoric from the president for months now, where he's sort of trying to influence his base by describing completely made up situations in cities all over the US um, as though they're all, you know, just riddled with crime and in flames, you know, just absolutely inaccurate descriptions that I think speak to his very common refrain around just trying to stoke fear with his kind of more rural base because they don't necessarily, you know, travel to those cities and certainly not right now. Most people aren't traveling much at all. So he's putting those voters in a position of kind of taking his word for it that U.S. cities are a hellscape. And in fact, you know, U.S. cities are, are not a hellscape. That's one dynamic is that cities are being vilified in this, in this election, just in general. But of course, the reason that's happening is, is because there is this kind of, you know, we talk about a rural-urban divide in the U.S. The reality is that most major cities in the U.S. do lean very heavily to the left. We've sorted ourselves here in the United States into, you know, kind of left-leaning urban enclaves that are, you know, major cities in the U.S. are not going to be voting for the president. But they're located in states with vast rural areas where those parts of the country tend to lean far more to the right. So that dynamic is just the kind of key to understanding why, you know, a sitting U.S. president would sort of denigrate all cities um, in this way and make his base afraid of us, afraid of cities, afraid of people of color and who live in those cities or the, the specter of rising crime, when in fact the reality is violent crime, you know, has never been lower in this country. It's been declining steadily for 30 years. That's really a play here. And then the, the third theme I would I would point to is the efforts on the part of the Republican Party to suppress the vote in urban areas. These are reliably democratic constituencies. And you, you know, you've seen over the last few weeks, you know, certain cities um, in Texas and Georgia with, you know, 10, 11 hour long lines to vote in the early voting period. There are clear efforts to try to make it as difficult as possible for people in more densely populated cities in the U.S. to vote right now. So the lines seem pretty bright and clear. That's all playing into this, this rhetoric that you're seeing from the president. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, I said at the top of this pod that early voting turnout was a testament to American voters. The other part of that is that what it is by and large not a testament to is our voting system and individuals who actively go out of their way to make it more difficult to vote. But, you know, you you were speaking about the urban-rural divide and the other place that I wanted to bring in was the suburbs because Trump has spent so much time saying that he's saving the suburbs. He, you know, is saying suburban women, I've saved your neighborhoods. My take on this is that it speaks to like this 1950s idea of the suburbs that's actually not grounded in what the suburbs are today, which is actually poorer and more diverse than people think, which is not to say like, actually, the suburbs are this like progressive paradise, but that their challenges are separate from the vision that Trump is outlining. But I wanted to get your thoughts on it, too. Right. So that's obviously been a big part of the conversation as well. You're absolutely right, Emily. You know, Trump's notion of what the suburbs look like is clearly out of date. That's not to suggest that U.S. suburbs are all, you know, harmoniously integrated, but they are vastly more diverse than they used to be. It's been really interesting for me as someone who follows urban planning and zoning policy very closely across across the world, but particularly here in the U.S., to find that we're literally talking about zoning rules in the presidential campaign, which is you know just not something that comes up very often. But this all kicked off because. President Trump zeroed in on this kind of very particular policy change from that was left over from the Obama administration that was designed to allow for more dense zoning in the suburbs. Essentially, it was all about whether or not it would be allowed to build multi-unit dwellings in neighborhoods that used to be zoned only for single-family homes. And that's how a lot of this, you know, I saved the suburbs conversation kicked off. Trump was trying to roll back an Obama era rule that simply made it easier to build apartment buildings and some affordable housing projects in suburban neighborhoods where there used to be more restrictive zoning. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that that ended up bubbling up into the campaign. But yeah, you know, I mean, the reality, you're right. The suburbs are not what Trump imagines them to be. You know, he often seems to be kind of stuck. I don't know if I would say the 1950s, but maybe more like the 70s. He, mm-hmm. he has this idea about how the world is that often feels like he's stuck in the past, you know, and that includes his idea that like, oh, U.S. cities are all scary, dangerous places that are riddled with criminals. And again, that's not the case. You know, U.S. cities are safer than they've ever been. And crime rates are, are much lower than they than they have ever been. In terms of suburban voters, I, I think that his focus on trying to stoke fears about lower income families moving into your neighborhood and ruining the suburbs, I do wonder if if he's just made a, a quite a bad miscalculation there. That's not really one of the biggest concerns of suburban voters at the moment. They're much more concerned with getting the pandemic under control and rising unemployment amidst the pandemic. And so, again, it just speaks to his constant willingness to stoke his kind of white nationalist rhetoric and, and try to inflame racist sentiments within his base. Another important place-based aspect of this U.S. election campaign and the the geographical patchwork of American politics is the impact of trade on different parts of the U.S. economy. And we were very excited at the New Statesman this week to publish a, a joint feature along with Investment Monitor about 
the long-term apparent decoupling of the American and Chinese economies. Now, Courtney, a lot of people will remember that railing against China's trade policies was a, a signature theme of Trump's election campaign in 2016 and one that he's returned to. And indeed, the trade war with China has been one of the the big developments of of the last four years. But I'd be interested if you could talk us through what impact that might have on the politics in this election, because there was a, as part of that feature, you you published a a very interesting piece about the the way that the trade war and that declining investment from China, for example, and potentially declining trade with China affects different parts of the US electorate. Could you give us a little glimpse of those findings? Sure. Well, the trade wars are, you know, by their nature disruptive and therefore they're problematic for both trade and investment. And, and they do a lot of damage to businesses and their ability to plan. So the trade wars have hurt American industry in numerous ways. But what I found interesting when we started to look in the data was at the state level impact, which we don't really talk an awful lot about because it's, you know, we can see the trend is that trade between the U.S. and China clearly declined. And that is a result of the trade war and all the uncertainty. But if you take it at a state by state level, there's some really interesting things that jump out, which is that the Trump voting states. So if we look at the, the red states, those that voted Trump in 2016, and many of them are, are likely to do so again they are actually the ones hurting the most. So it's kind of a self-inflicted wound. And I'm originally from Alabama, so my eyes went immediately in the numbers to Alabama. Alabama is one of the states in the country with the highest level of support for Trump. And it is a state where the the populace is very susceptible to China bashing or foreigner bashing in general. So the populism plays really well there. The dog whistles, they love, they in general love all of it. But I I happen to know anyway that Alabama is a state that attracts a lot of FDI for its size. And the state's economy is actually extremely internationalized after a huge influx of automotive investment that happened in the 90s. So people are actually there voting against their own interest in terms of trade and investment. So Alabama has 11% of its exports going to China. And if we look at how much foreign investment Alabama has received from China versus how much it has sent overseas, there's a gap of $520 million, meaning Alabama has a surplus of $520 million with China. But if you were to go there and talk to the average person on the street, they'll tell you, We've been ripped off by China and really Trump needs to show China lessons. So I use that just as one example of this dichotomy. And I think the reason for it is that I may spend my time obsessed on a daily basis with foreign direct investment and looking at the figures, but but your average person clearly doesn't. And FDI is something that impacts people's lives in an extremely direct way because we're actually talking about job creation, job losses, but it's not front of mind for your average voter. And often they are talking about FDI without realizing it, but they almost always have things backwards in terms of where their bread is buttered. I know you pay close attention to the election campaign as well itself. Do you have a sense of where the voters in the states that have traditionally been dependent on exports and that may have felt that 
they had lost out to China by the rise of China as a manufacturing power, whether they have a sense of gratitude to Trump for his tariff policies over the last years, because you know this much better than me, but looking at our, our New Statesman results forecast, we currently have, based on polling and other factors, Biden on track as the most likely victor in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, states that you know, are traditionally sort of seen as the the heartland of the kind of Rust Belt is an is a generalization, but the heartland of that sort of trade skeptical Trump base. Where is that looking four years on? Do you think Do you think it's right to say that he isn't reaping political rewards for his trade and investment policies? Bizarrely, I think he he potentially is because people aren't really connecting the dots. So in places where people are hurting economically, so if we think of of your typical Rust Belt town where they are hurting economically and it's very easy to blame, you know, jobs went overseas, the factory closed. And if somebody comes along and tells you, you're right, this is the fault of China or Mexico, and I'm going to make them pay and I'm standing up for you, you really want to believe that. And it's an emotional appeal, even if that doesn't turn out to be the case. And in fact, even if those very policies that that the populist savior has pursued hurts their town more, very often there is a disconnect there and they don't quite see it that way. And again, I think it's because of people not really looking at the numbers and not not thinking of how trade and investment actually works. So, and also the thing to bear in mind about FDI, I mean, trade happens more instantaneously, but FDI, if you're talking about building factory or even relocating a factory, I mean, these are large capital investments and they're physical facilities and they don't pick up sticks and and leave overnight. Equally, they don't just appear overnight. So it was always false. I mean, if, if anyone expected that a president who could come in and let's say is inaugurated in 2007, and even by now, factories are springing up all over Ohio. That, that was just never going to be the case anyway, because the timelines don't work that way. But what that also means is the closures of factories and the harm that some of these policies have done. You might not also see that immediately in three and a half years. Interesting. Again, to go back to 2016, the narrative certainly seen from overseas was that you had Trump's America and you had Clinton's America. And Clinton's America was the America of the cities, the America that had benefited from globalization, from the integration of trade, flows of investment and so forth, that was competent about many aspects of the modern world. And then you had Trump's America, which was everything else, which was rural, which was post-industrial, which was skeptical about trade and all of these things. And sometimes in the US and, and frankly, in some of the coverage of comparable phenomena like, like the Brexit vote in the UK, I think the characterization was a bit binary and a bit oversimplified. You know, you had either coffee drinking, metropolitan, liberal, globalized elites, you know, living in the app economy and resentful former steel workers who hate foreigners. And I tended to get the impression that was an oversimplification. So I'd, I'd like your views on, first of all, the truth or not of that in 2016, but also where that cultural divide, to the extent that we can talk of one, along economic and geographical lines within the US, stands now four years on, four years into the, the Trump presidency. Courtney, do you, do you want to start us off? And then I'd, I'd love to hear from Summer and Emily as well. Yes, well, I believe the divide is actually more cultural than truly economic. And I'm I'm going to pick on my sweet home Alabama again, because it, it typifies so much of what we're talking about here. 
because of the huge influx of foreign investment that happened in Alabama since the 90s, a lot of people there, I would say almost most people there work for foreign company. And therefore, they are arguably just as globalized and internationalized as, as other states on the coast or, or cities that they think of as being international. And, and despite that, this term globalist is a slur. And if you look at it per capita, a state like that is arguably even more internationalized than, say, California, which has a huge domestic economy in its own homegrown companies. If I think anecdotally of the vast majority of my friends who in Alabama, especially the the higher paid jobs, they usually come from foreign companies. So that's why I think that the economic divide is a bit of a falsehood when we're thinking about which areas are international and which aren't. But there is a genuine cultural divide because, you know, places in the heartland may be less multicultural and, and, and they are more sort of susceptible to the culture wars and actually to a divide of what they see as a metropolitan lifestyle versus rural. But I think it's really important to separate that out from what's actually happening economically. And on that point about the metropolitan divide, what's your take on that, Summer? I agree with Courtney in part. I think there is an economic layer to it, but I absolutely agree that it's largely cultural. You know, I can point to some reporting we've done on City Monitor in the last few weeks that touches on some of this. So we've been looking at Wisconsin, which was obviously so pivotal in 2016 and and the national election. And there were a lot of stories coming out from 2016 in that state about this kind of rural resentment of, you know, as Courtney put it, kind of metropolitan elites. But one of the dynamics that we've zeroed in on there is it is partially at least economic where you've got rural or exurban areas, you know, outside of major cities where wages are low or jobs are scarce. And in in those cases, you may even have people in those communities who have public sector jobs that pay a bit better. All of that's playing out in a way where you can actually have people in your own community who have a bit of a better paying job because they work for maybe the local government, the state or the county. Somehow the the cultural divide actually plays into this sense that, well, my neighbor has making more money than me because they're tied to the metropolitan elites, the people in cities who are making the decisions far away from me. I think it's a really important dynamic to understand right now, especially as state and local governments are thanks to the pandemic, now facing the prospect of slashing many public sector jobs in those areas. In many rural areas in the U.S., the best paying jobs are actually public sector jobs. I think that the economic divides are there and it, it's a classic haves and have nots. I think what I was was trying to illuminate was more that it's not as simple as it seems as to which local and state economies are more internationalized than not. And that arguably some of the poorer states actually are more reliant on this outside investment and the jobs actually coming from overseas than the reverse. So that's what I mean about the divide. But I, I agree with you completely that the the divides of people feeling that others have something they don't have and the economic pain is for sure present and there. Right. And I, I guess I would just add that I certainly don't want to sort of subscribe to the view that it's just this economic anxiety that is driving people to embrace 
candidates like Donald Trump, because, you know, clearly it's so much more than that. And maybe there's a layer of economic anxiety. But in fact, you know, what Donald Trump has been so successful in doing is is stoking racial resentment, resentment of foreigners and the willingness to embrace that kind of ideology. That is clearly the biggest divide that we are currently facing in the U.S. I would just also think that while I don't mean to suggest that there are not some Trump voters who are genuinely hurting, who have been left behind, you know, who feel real economic pain. In 2016, it came out that the median Trump voter actually had a higher household income than the median Clinton voter. And that actually, 2017, it came out that about a third of Trump supporters were, were below working class, right? A thing that also really frustrates me about this is that we speak about people who have been left behind in America. Well, Black Americans who overwhelmingly support the Democratic candidate are more than twice as likely as white Americans to live in poverty. So I think that we we tend to have, like, when we are speaking about the American who is left behind, who are we speaking about? And are we speaking about, I mean, not, not in this conversation, but more generally, I think there's this tendency to, like, you know, like Hillbilly Elegy, right? It was a hugely popular book after Trump won and not to knock Hillbilly Elegy, but like that is not the complete picture of the Trump voter. I am from my hometown where I mostly grew up on Long Island is home to Anthony Scaramucci and Bill O'Reilly. And it went for Trump. Like they are not left behind. I'm sorry. And so I think that while yes, there is an economic element to it, it's it's cultural, it's the politics of resentment. And not to like, you know, hate on my hometown, but there, there are these people who are like, well, they're all the same or, or or they pretend like they're willing to overlook certain things because they like Trump's tax plan. And it's like, at a certain point, don't you have to admit that the entire way in which you live in these cloistered, wealthy communities is supported and supports this broader Trump ideology? So that is what I would say about that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I'd just like to ask you, again, all three, one more question, seeing as we've been discussing the geography of this. Some listeners might be starting to think ahead to the US election night and where will be the places to watch and the places that will matter. I'd love to hear, just to conclude this discussion about the election and place and geography, where you all will be looking at in the results, whether it's a county or a town or a city or a state or a region, if there's a particular place or places that you will each be paying attention to when the results come out, either because they matter to the final result or because, they, and it may well be that, that the result there is clear, but but that they might be interesting for another reason. Emily, do you want to start us off? I will be paying particular attention to two kind of regions. The first is Michigan and Wisconsin, which Trump famously won in 2016. So it will be interesting to see if Biden can now kind of win them back or if the trend is now that those two states go Republican. But more than that, I think it will be really interesting to watch Texas, Arizona, Georgia. All three of those people have been predicting for years, like, this is the cycle, it's going to go blue, you know, and it doesn't, which as we spoke about, or as Summer said earlier on in this conversation is in part, I think one could argue is in part because of tactics to make sure that the vote does not get out in primarily Democratic areas. But demographics in those states are changing. There's been a piece out today in Dallas about how Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro, two Texas-based politicians, are both like begging the Biden campaign to spend more there because it's it's so close and they think that they have a real shot at winning Texas this year. I do not think that the Democrats will win Texas, but I think that Arizona and Georgia are a real possibility and it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Amazing that Texas is even in play for the Democrats, isn't it? Summer, where will you be interested to see the results? 
like Emily, I'm, I'm very curious about what's happening in Georgia. That's one of the, the locations where we've seen incredibly long lines for early voting. And, and, you know, we're heading into the last full week of the early voting period before Election Day. So I'm going to be paying close attention to really what's happening in terms of the mechanisms of voting in urban areas inside these swing states like Georgia, like Pennsylvania, and then Texas. That's really been the most kind of controversial story where they've limited the number of early voting drop-off places to one per county. And it's easy to see how in places like Harris County, where where Houston is located, it's madness, right? You've got a county of 5 million people, and they only have one place to drop off their early voting ballots. So continuing to watch how the early voting process is playing out in different locations, and particularly in these more likely to lean Democrat urban areas inside the swing states. And how about you, Courtney? Well, I'm also very interested in some of these southern states and whether they can swing, but I'm most fixated on Pennsylvania because I think that will indicate a huge amount as to where things are going. I mean, it's important. I think it has 20 electoral votes. Right there, you have the big metropolitan regions, but you have a lot of, they call a lot of places of Pennsylvania. They say Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in the middle. So you have really all of it happening there, and it will be a battle for Trump won before by just running up the vote massively in the rural counties of Pennsylvania. So I'll be watching to see if he can do that again and whether that can be offset by large Democratic votes in the cities. I just want to quickly plug that if you, listener, have heard this and are like, wow, I wish I could learn more about these states, I have great news. Next week in our Swing State Stories series, I will have a piece out on Georgia and what's at stake there. And Jake Bloomgart who works with Summer at City Monitor and with us more broadly at the New States Media Group, will have a piece on Pennsylvania. So do check it out next week. And you can also follow all of our US election coverage in the final run-up to election day at our hub, newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. And I'd also like to quickly also plug the feature on the decoupling of the US and Chinese economies that we touched on in that conversation. You can read all of the pieces from the New Statesman, from Investment Monitor, and from our colleagues at Technology Monitor via the link newstatesman.com slash decoupling. So do check that out. Very big, important mega story behind this election and backdrop to a lot of what's going on. So with that, it's time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. This question comes to us from Nick in London. Our producer, Nick Hilton, has promised that it's not him. So Nick in London, thank you. The Republican Party are desperate to stifle the postal vote in the upcoming presidential election, e.g. Texas. But how can they be so sure that this will not hit their vote as well and potentially an even greater number? With older voters, a key target group for Trump, likely to stay away from in-person voting due to the pandemic, it seems to be a high-risk strategy. Nick from London, this is a great question. I have thoughts, but I'm going to turn it over to our guests first. Summer, do you want to take the first attempt? Yeah, it's a very astute question from Nick. I think Nick's really right to ask it. It may very well be just a massive miscalculation on Trump's part and on the Republican Party's part. We're seeing huge early voting turnout in part, we think, because people are so worried about the reliability of the U.S. Postal Service right now, which is a wild situation to be in for Americans. So people who are determined to have their vote 
count this year are really going the extra mile to show up to an early voting polling site or find out where they can drop off their absentee ballots in person to take some of that risk out of the calculation of of getting their votes counted. But yeah, absolutely. It, It very well could backfire on the GOP in a spectacular way. And that's something I think we'll all be paying attention to. Courtney? I believe it could be a bit of an an own goal. And we even heard in in Florida, some of the state officials asking Trump, you know, a few months ago to stop telling people not to do postal ballots because they were worried about how it would impact, you know, Republican votes there. And then that's why, of course, he turned around and said, oh, no, voting by mail is bad everywhere except Florida. Right. Specifically in Florida, it's safe and legit. Right. But I think that the the reason, too, why Trump does this anyway is that it, the whole purpose is just to sow doubt about an election anyway. And so to set the scene to be able to claim fraud, because it, they knew all along there would be more postal ballots than in a normal year. So in case you lose and the numbers aren't looking your way, you need to already sort of lay the groundwork to say, well, that's an illegitimate way to vote anyway. Yeah, I would I agree with all of that. I think the three things I would say are First, that when I wrote the swing state story on Florida, I had a Floridian like pollster tell me that he thought Trump was going to lose the state because he had discouraged mail-in voting and his older supporters in Florida were not going to go to the polls and risk their lives, especially if the infection rate is very high in Florida on election day. I mean, to Nick and London's point, yes, it's a high risk strategy. I think the reason that they did it anyway is twofold. One, if you look at the percentage of people in states that share the registration of the voters who have gone to early voting, it's something like 52% are registered Democrats and 20 something percent are registered Republicans. And also many more Democrats said, yes, I'm going to vote by mail this year than Republicans. So the hope is both that you can suppress the Democratic vote and your voters will come out on election day for what Trump has hailed as a or predicted to be a red wave. And the second thing is exactly as Courtney said, it's a very cynical game. It's not even about like getting your guys to the polls or or trying to win. It's about trying to render the election to, to elect the president of the country that you're currently governing illegitimate, which is uncharted and fascinating territory. Yeah, it's probably worth adding here, Emily, to we just set a, a new record for daily infections right. um, yes. of COVID-19 yesterday. You know, the, the numbers came out this morning. So we are, in fact, racing toward an election day where the infection rates are quite high across the entire country. This particular strategy on on Trump's part, I think we we're going to have to see, but we may in fact see people hesitant to go to in-person voting on election day due to these high infection rates. You know, how that's going to affect the turnout is going to be a big story. Yeah. The gamble that enough people who support you are going to either ignore reality or accept reality and risk their lives so that you can win on election day, that's a big gamble. So relatedly, uh, talking of the crucial coming days, for our final segment, I'd like to hear from you all what you're looking forward to in the in the next week or what event you'll be paying particular attention to. Courtney, do you want to start us off? Well, I have to say I will be mostly watching the polls in some of these swing states. So I will be keeping a, a close eye on your election tracker on New Statesman. Very wise decision. <laughs> that's, that's probably the most important 
thing right now because of the importance of the election and and as we go into the the final stretch. So that's where my eyes are pretty much constantly there. And how about you, Summer? Yeah, similarly, I mean, I think we're all still thinking about 2016 and the extent to which there was a sense that, you know, some of the polling in key states felt like it, it wasn't accurate because people weren't willing to even maybe potentially even say that they plan to vote for Trump. These polls can shift. And as, as we're getting closer to Election Day, I think keeping a close eye on what people are willing to tell pollsters is certainly going to be interesting to me. And Emily, what will you be watching out for? I will also be watching the U.S. election, but because I know that we have been U.S. election heavy on this pod, and I know that election coverage starts so early here, like last winter before I joined the New Statesman, I was trying to pitch a piece to a different publication, and they were like, sorry, we're only doing the presidential election, which was still like 11 months away. So I get that other areas of the world in the U.S. maybe go undercovered or under-discussed. And so for my thing that I will be watching next week, I did want to mention these protests in Nigeria. People are protesting against police brutality in Nigeria, and those protests have turned violent because authorities have started shooting. So that is something that I will be watching closely over the next week and weeks. And Jeremy, what will what will you be uh, keeping an eye on? Well, to take us very far away from the US election, I will be watching the NASA announcement on Monday of what they call exciting news about the moon. And it's not every week you get exciting news about the moon. So I'll be watching that. And there's some suggestion that partly because one of the people who's listed as giving the announcement is is an expert on the search for water on the moon, that it might be something to do with the detection of water there. So not really, well, it's a bit beyond the world. We'll call it world's review for this purpose, but I'm excited to see what they have to say. You'll be watching moon news, or as I like to call it, moose. (laughs) I'll be keeping my eye on the moose. Thank you for that (laughs) coinage. So with with no further ado, I would like to say a big thank you to Courtney Finger. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks very much. And to Summer Mattis. Thank you, Summer. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Emily. And a reminder that Courtney is editor of Investment Monitor, a new publication from the New Statesman Media Group, investmentmonitor.ai. And Summer Mattis is the editor-in-chief of City Monitor, citymonitor.ai on cities and all things related to them. So I'd really strongly recommend listeners check those out. Some really exciting journalism coming out of those publications. I will put the links on the web page for this podcast episode, along with the link to Emily's Swing State story on Florida, as mentioned, and to both of our columns this week, which touch on issues that we've discussed, as well as to that big news and media group feature on US-China decoupling. So a lot of reading for those who want to dig further into the subject. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And a reminder, you can follow all our coverage of the US election at our US election hub, usstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening and until next week. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.